You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. I was just so excited. I, I couldn't wait to be pregnant. That's Denise Neal. Her family has deep roots in the East Bay. Here's her son, Joey Enos. My great-grandfather was born in New York to a Jewish family, moved to Oakland, and lived around 10th and, 10th and Broadway. And my great-grandma lived next door, and her family moved to the United States after her father was a judge in Mexico, and he got chased out by Pancho Villa. And so he came to Oakland to become a truck driver. And so my great-grandma, you know, got busy with the, the boy next door. The local roots go deep on Joey's dad's side of the family, too. Those ancestors came here from Portugal and settled in a part of East Oakland that later came to be known by a very festive nickname. Jingletown was a Portuguese neighborhood, and the reason they call it Jingletown is because they would get paid on Fridays from the canneries, and they would get paid in change. And so the ladies would walk by, and the men would jingle their zoot suit pants. But back to Joey's mom, Denise. She couldn't wait to get pregnant. I would go all the time to get tested, and you have to wait a certain amount of time to find out. So when I did find out, I called the blimp company because I thought it'd be really cool that if we had a picnic in the backyard with all our friends and family, the blimp would go by and blink, congratulations, uh, Tom, Denise, and CJ, and I think I put the dog's name on it too, are having a baby in June. But then... The rent the blimp, it was $50,000. So that wasn't in my budget. <laughs> so I go to plan B. Plan B involved building a wooden sculpture out in a polluted wasteland along the bay, kind of across the highway from where that Ikea in Emeryville is now. My girlfriend's an artist, and she's very good at it. And I said, this is what I want. And I went and bought the plywood. And it was as big as, uh, it was huge. And I wanted pink and blue polka dots all over the baby buggy. So that's what they did. They went out to the mud flats, as that part of the shoreline was called back then, and they built it. It was big. I mean, you definitely saw it off the freeway. Denise chose this location because she knew her husband, Tom, would see it coming home from work. Tom's family owned a factory in this part of Emeryville. We were basically soap manufacturers. And then we had a chemical specialties line. That's Tom Enos, Joey's dad. When I first got there, and when I was 17 or 18 years old, harvesting whales was still legal. And my mother and father would buy whale oil, and I would react it into whale oil soap. There are not very many people in the world that can say they've made whale oil soap, <laughs> They were technically a chemical company. Back then, it was mostly soaps and bug spray. They also supplied the, the East Bay massage parlors with lotion, and it, they called it hanky-panky lotion, and it came in five-gallon five gallon jugs. Not too subtle. No. <laughs> anyway, people had been building art projects out at the mudflats since the early 1960s, But by the time Denise got pregnant with Joey in the late 70s, Emeryville was changing. In the redevelopment strategy, there was no room for this very visible free-for-all. 
Now, mind you, we were trying to control in a very intelligent way all of what was going on in the flats. My husband was on the Chamber of Commerce. They were trying to get all those artists and art stuff off the mud flats. I was a city planning commissioner. At the time, the city of Emeryville only had 600 voters. The Chamber of Commerce, they were trying to get rid of all that stuff. And then, you know, Tom's on the Chamber of Commerce, and here I have the biggest sign out there. Well, how did your husband react when he saw the big baby buggy? No, he didn't get mad. I'm surprised. I don't remember him being mad. I was on my way home, and I made a left to get on the freeway entrance there. And there was a sign and said, hooray, Tom Enos is going to be a father. I should note that Denise's version of these events is slightly different. Well, you know her and I are divorced. But all the important details line up. So were you a little embarrassed by having your name out there? No, because the idea of being a father for the one and only time was exciting. But the way she did it, uh, I lead a very private life. And that's where I want to stay. That's just one of the stories I found after I fell down the rabbit hole of researching the Emeryville mudflats. There are lots more coming up. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. I'm Liam O'Donohue. Stay tuned. The mudflats were just a forgotten wasteland for years. And it was one of the troughs from East Bay Mud from their waste plant into there. Again, Tom Enos. You know where the toll plaza is? That would be the Bay Bridge Toll Plaza. If you look out there a little farther, there's a pier out there. A little, If it's still there, you might see pilings. But those were all where the uh, little duck clubs were. Duck hunting as a sport was very, very popular in that area with the Italians. And a lot of times I would see at noontime, I'd see an old timer with a pair of chest waders on and a shotgun over his shoulder and a string of ducks that he picked up from his morning shoot on his way back into the residential part of the town. That was, that was in the late 60s. You know, that wasn't like in the 20s. It was 60s, 70s that, that was going on. During this era, the industrial factories were starting to leave Emeryville, but all the new developments hadn't been built yet. You wouldn't know it from looking at all the big box stores and offices there now, but Emeryville used to be a hotbed of crime. Emeryville had a lot of gambling. It had a lot of numbers. It had a lot of girls. When Earl Warren was Alameda County's district attorney, he busted the Emeryville police chief with nearly 600 gallons of illegal booze during Prohibition. There were 12 brothels within a block of the police station, and not a single church within city limits. Warren called it the dirtiest little town on the Pacific coast. Anyway, in 1960, when Evil was just starting to phase out of its industrial era, changes were also happening over by the Oakland airport. Bay Farm Island was a part of the, the city of Alameda. It was a small Italian-Portuguese farming community. They grew asparagus. And it was kind of just, just a strip of land completely surrounded by mud. Again, Joey Enos. He wrote the article for the Evil Eye website that inspired today's episode. A local artist named Gary Knox Bennett 
and Robert Bechtel, they both grew up in Alameda, and they both uh, went to school at CCA. That's California College of the Arts. When they were taking the sculpture class, the class decided to make artwork out of garbage. And according to Gary, he suggested Bayform Island, which had just an immense amount of driftwood and garbage. And it was before they filled it until what you would see today. And so they went out there. He described that, you know, they had a case of beer and a uh, box full of nails. And they, they built a sculpture. They ended up building a boat, sort of. It looked more like a treehouse without the tree, a bunch of wood nailed together in a giant jumble. The class climbed on it and took some pictures. A few months later, these photos were hanging up at CCA. And then this happened. An undergrad student named John McCracken, he ends up seeing the photographs and actually takes the idea to Emeryville. The interesting part about Emeryville is that it's right next to the freeway. So if anything he built, people would see. The freeway was lower back then, eye level with the bay. McCracken started a tradition that would last for about three decades. He wanted to make pure abstract work, you know, things that couldn't be associated with anything else. So he was trying to use garbage to do that. Also driftwood, old telephone poles, industrial waste, pretty much anything that washed up or was dumped there. At the time, the idea of detritus as art, or even art as ugly, you know, was kind of this thing that was being discussed in academic circles and in, in galleries and such. After the rise of abstract expressionism and artists like Jackson Pollock, the art world was looking for something new. People had been using whatever was laying around to make art for a long time, but now the fine art world was starting to take it seriously. The country was starting to emerge from the McCarthyist 1950s, an era defined by repression and conformity. You know, the, the 50s was kind of this peak of sort of like consumerist optimism too. Right. So I'd imagine that that, oh, yeah. that movement was kind of responding to... It made, it made perfect sense because, you know, you have all these images of suburban housewives buying things, these cans of things, and then... The antithesis of that is you have all these like dirty beatniks picking up this garbage and then making faces out of it. The San Francisco Chronicle wrote about this first wave of mudflat sculptures. Not exactly a glowing review. The first article ever written about the Emeryville mudflats called it degenerate art. You know, like what is going on here? They, they found it interesting enough to write about it, but at the same time they really sort of took it the opportunity to question like what is going on here? Like where is our culture going? One El Cerrito High School student saw the paper and saw John McCracken's work and decided to make some pretty recognizable sculptures that over the years kept being rebuilt. He built a, a, a giant hand in the air. Uh, he also built a Viking ship and a Viking and a, and a dragon. These were the first ones that were truly sort of monumental in size. Some of these were probably 20, 30 feet high. The road to San Francisco had become a drive-through art gallery. This clip is from a 1980 documentary called Mud Flat. There were giraffes, wooden ships, and kangaroos along the freeway each morning. People came from all over to build Chinese dragons, elephants, fish, and totem poles. The mud flat was in a time warp. 
And this was a stage where people could play out their temporary dreams. If you live in the Bay Area, there's a really distinct smell of the mud and the sand and weird green stuff that sort of lives and dies in the, the mud flats. Like the fennel. The fennel, and, and, and I just, you, you just smell it. Like when I look at these sculptures, I, I know that smell. Joey has a photo book of mudflat sculptures. He showed me some of his favorites. There's imagery that happens over and over again. There's always a Viking or a, a Don Quixote. I don't know if the Don Quixote-esque is like a word. But, yeah. You know, it's like that image is just a perfect representation, like the literary illusion right. you know, to, to the artistic expression of what's right. happening there is amazing. Yeah. A lot of these, the works, they're the opposite of monumental despite their size and their, their sort of presence. You know, so a lot of them imitate monumental sculpture. So a lot of, you know, men on horses and things like that. And then, you know, especially with Don Quixote, it's like a, it's like a shadow of what it's supposed to be. He's supposed to be this knight on this, on this horse, but really, you know, he's this old man on a, this dying horse, you know. And same thing with the mudflats is that these are supposed to be heroic images of of these things, but really they're just hubcaps and, and, and old Coke bottles. A lot of them have these sort of, I would imagine they're sound effects uh, or sound aspects to the sculptures, a lot of hanging bottles and cans. And so if you've ever been to the, uh, the shoreline, you know it's really windy out there sometimes, especially when the, the fog rolls in. And so what I try to imagine is these sort of, these monsters kind of rising out of the, the mud and hearing the, the whistles between the ropes and the clanging of the, the old bottles and, you know, Clorox bottles and, and so A lot of the sculptures have this incredible sense of otherness but are very real. So when you see a, a sculpture of the train, you notice the, the, the wheel on the hubcap and the, the shoddy pieces of wood but then, at the same time, it, it sort of, you can imagine this, this train actually running and moving through space. I discovered a photograph in, in the collection at CCA. There was a sculpture that was made that was signed, and it, and it has the last name Zucker on it. So whoever Zucker was made a sculpture and then signed at the bottom like it was an artwork. And then on top of his, his signature, Someone crossed it out and wrote in big letters, ego. And then below that, someone wrote to, by another person, because it's a different kind of handwriting. It says, take it back to the studio. Most of the folks making stuff at the mudflats weren't professional artists. It was this amazing cross-section of people who made sculptures out there. Where the IKEA is now was the Sherman Williams plant. And right next to that was a steel plant. And there's stories of guys on their lunch break just drinking beer and, and, and making stuff on the other side. Nobody really took the mudflat scene seriously, as art anyway. With no pressure on it, the culture flourished. Because it was anonymous, it gave people this ability to say things that they you know, might not be able to do. I mean, you, know, it, it's, you could do and make stuff and not be judged for it. The way that I sort of imagine it, especially in the, in the late 60s, early 70s, is that it's really hard to sort of digest like how crazy things were. You know, the people of the barrier, this stuff was happening in their backyard. Tear gas getting dropped by helicopters down Telegraph Avenue. The, the shootings of the, the Black Panthers. 
what do you do with that energy? What do you do with that sort of fear and confusion? Building and destruction, these activities went on side by side. It had always been that way. So what was the driftwood art? It was a monument to change. It reflected the nature of the land. It was on the delicate changing edge of the earth. The beauty of it was that it was transitional, just like the tides coming and going. It was always changing. Where the mudflats are and where the freeway is, it's, a, it's about 100 feet down of mud. It's almost like a, a, a living, breathing environment, and that environment is just all change. As the, the tide comes in and tide comes out, it, it comes in really aggressively and pulls out really aggressively. It kind of dictated a, a space that you knew nothing was going to last. And it gave a lot of people freedom just to play and to um, experiment. Oh, I drove by them six times a week for years. I was commuting from Berkeley to San Francisco where I was teaching at San Francisco State. That's Tim Drescher, a retired college professor. Tim also published Community Murals magazine. You got used to anticipating what different kind of things would be out there. I just thought it was fun. And like I said, vernacular sculpture, a sense of whimsy introduced into the grinding uh, industrial commute and so forth. That was, it was a delight. It was a change of, of view. I'm pretty sure that the person who called me and said, we're going to get together on April, whatever it was, was Lincoln Cushing. My name's Lincoln Cushing, and I am an artist and a social activist and in my current phase of my life, I do a lot of work as an archivist and documentarian. One of the things about political artwork is if you've got a great piece of political artwork and it's just sitting in somebody's home, it's not doing any good. The big challenges of political art is exposure. Remember, this was way before Facebook. Most people got their news from the Chronicle or Oakland Tribune and network news. These kinds of sources were usually pretty conservative so activists would use the mudflats to get their messages out to the public. People built sculptures to promote Cesar Chavez's Great Boycott, for example, and to support Native American activists who occupied Alcatraz in 1970. These kinds of political projects were the reason Tim and Lincoln ended up at the mudflats. One of my art friends said, hey, come and join me on a project. So I said, absolutely. It was just really cool. So it was nice to be able to get my feet dirty and do it. You pull off the road, you park, and you're able to park, you know, you know, then it was pretty easy to park there, and then you just sort of climb over a dirt berm and you hike in, and it was easy to find, and it was easy to do things there. And we all showed up one morning out there, and some people had bought paint. We all brought tools and uh, just decided on the spot how we were going to uh, create something to raise people's attention about the atrocities that we were uh, funding in Central America, and we did. Tim's talking about President Reagan's support of death squads in El Salvador, among other things. My episode about the history of sanctuary cities goes pretty deep on this, if you're interested. Here's Lincoln again. One of the nice things is you're, you're dealing with you know, large pieces of wood and stuff. It's hard to do on your own. The medium lends itself to, to working at least with, with a small group. Mostly you're dealing with whatever is found at the time, and often things would get recycled. 
and you find parts that you go, ooh, ooh. Now here's something where we can use some ores that washed up and we use the ores to, to sort of highlight the arms of a figure. It was just a lot of fun to do and it was, it was every time we did it, it was spontaneous creativity. So it was, it was never, you never did exactly what you thought you were gonna do. And of course, the larger the scale you made it, the more impact it had. So there was always this sort of trick of, you know, can we make this bigger and bolder? But um, one of the challenges is they are driving by fast. You didn't want people to have to go, what the hell was that? You want people to go, oh, you know, that's cool. These guys worked on a bunch of different sculptures in the mid 80s, trying to put the crisis in Central America on blast. The one I remember most was a very tall figure, maybe 20, 25 feet tall, made basically out of two by fours of a female figure with a rifle on her back. And that was a pretty, pretty startling image. If you've got a really nice piece, they would stay up for a while and eventually they'd start to collapse or whatever and people would scavenge them. But a piece would stay up for months at a time. Unfortunately, the biggest project that Tim and Lincoln worked on, a collection of sculptures they did as part of a large group, only lasted one night. They were destroyed by people with a political agenda, definitely. I was, I was really disappointed because I thought, among other things, the pieces were fun to look at. They were beautiful. You want to believe that you're, you know, goading the military enough that they send somebody out to do it, but you don't really know. The Emeryville mudflats were contested terrain. Nobody owned it. In some ways, you know, if you did something and it wasn't destroyed, you were wondering, well, gee, is our message not strong enough? It's the classic, um, you know, if we don't get shut down, are we, are we, are we properly, you know, poking the dragon? So it was part of the deal. You'd go back and you'd rebuild it. For a long time, the words stop war were spelled out with giant wooden letters out at the mud flats. This piece would get knocked down periodically and sometimes it would be rebuilt as fuck war. In a deleted scene from the 1971 movie Harold and Maude, you can see some kids tearing down the word fuck. So it just says war. There's a beautiful sunset in the background. Wedged between Oakland and Berkeley at the eastern foot of the Bay Bridge, it is within minutes commute of San Francisco. And now, from behind this low-key facade, the biggest building boom in the Bay Area has erupted. The little town of Emeryville is growing up as it becomes a utopia for developers. The mud is turning into millions. These clips are from Million Dollar Mud Flats, produced in 1983 by KQED. As redevelopment has taken off, so have property values. Heavy industries such as trucking and steel are being squeezed out, and new high-tech industries are moving in. So Emeryville really depended on, on this production to fund itself. If industry went out of Emeryville, there's not enough local people who live there taxes. So they quickly devised sort of um, a plan to grow the population. Again, that was Joey Enos. And here's his dad, Tom, who was a planning commissioner when this was going down. Come over the Powell Street overpass, over the railroad tracks, and what do you see? You see a dead-headed view of the Golden Gate Bridge. This is so picturesque that this kind of property is in need of development, not the way it was used for years. And there's, it was like yesterday was yesterday and today is today. 
It wasn't just developers who benefited from Emeryville's makeover. Birds got a good deal too. Part of the redevelopment meant getting rid of all that industrial pollution. And after the cleanup, the mudflats were designated as a protected area for wildlife. No pedestrians allowed. Nature has some rights. And I think it was a legitimate call to say it was off limits to be able to do this on a very fragile ecosystem. Again, Lincoln Cushing. It would be nice if there were some intermediate area where you designate a 50-yard zone between the freeway and the mudflats and say, okay, uh, this is public space, you know, and I'm sure that no city is going to take that on because of liability and so forth. Around the 1960s, a lot of cities started passing laws that said, if you're a big developer, you've got to set aside a certain amount of space and budget for public art. Usually it's around 1%. That's why you see a lot of installations and fountains and things like that nestled between high-rises in downtown San Francisco. Tim Drescher has a name for these kinds of projects. Parachute art, because it seems like it's just parachuted in in the middle of the night and, you know, deposited onto this plaza or whatever. Tim doesn't even like the term public art. Let me make a distinction between community arts and public art. Uh, public art is done for people. But if you talk to the people for whom it's done, they often feel like it's done to them or on them or at them. Community arts are done by or with people, and that makes all the difference. The mudflat sculptures were unique, but they also overlapped with a lot of other art traditions. Burning Man started around the same time that the mudflats ended, and there are a lot of similarities there. You know, giant wooden figures that don't last very long, there was a thriving renegade art scene out at Albany Bulb for a while, and people still do amazing paintings in the underground storm drains throughout the Bay Area. There's graffiti and murals everywhere. But yeah, a giant decades-long collaboration between thousands of people who mostly didn't even know each other that was seen by millions. There's never been anything else around here quite like it. and. There probably never will be. Thank you so much for listening to East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. For this episode, I want to thank everybody who talked to me along with Rob Arias from The Evil Eye, a wonderful East Bay publication, by the way. Highly recommend you check it out. Also, KQED, the California College for the Arts. Richard Reynolds, who directed that Mudflat documentary. Doug Minkler, Hannah Potassium, and Indy Bay. You can subscribe to this show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. You can also follow East Bay Yesterday on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram where I post photos related to each and every episode, as well as upcoming events and other cool local history news. There are links to all these social media pages at eastbayyesterday.com. And look, I know I say this every time, but please, if you like East Bay Yesterday, spread the word. If you give the show a shout out on social media, please be sure to tag it, review it on iTunes, that really helps. Music for this episode was provided by 
Chris Zabriskie, and The Fucked Up Beat. The theme song came from Anatech. All right, thanks again for listening. See you next time.